Welcome to the Augusta Golf Show podcast. Now, here's John Patrick. Mark Rolfing covers the game for Golf Channel and NBC. Mark was here in Augusta last week for the Masters. He is now back home in his beloved Hawaii working the Lote Championship. Pleasure to welcome Mark Rolfing back to the Augusta Golf Show. How are you, Mark? I am great, John Patrick, and just another fabulous week uh, for me in Augusta. It's uh, the Masters never, never fails to deliver. It's my favorite week of the year, and uh, always tough to leave, even though I'm going back to the islands. Uh, I miss Augusta already. You know, it's not the first time I've heard you say that. You say that almost all the time when we get together. What is it? What is it about the tournament or the course? I mean, I, a lot of people love it. What is it that makes you love it? You know, I've thought about that a lot. Uh, first of all, as far as I'm concerned, it's the greatest golf tournament in the world. Um you know, for a number of different reasons. I, I think the most amazing thing to me about the Masters and about Augusta National is how it has grown uh, over the years that I've been going and, you know, just exploded in terms of its reach and all the things that they do uh, at the club. But it has never changed its personality. It has never wavered from its core being. Um, even though the revenues that are generated now around that tournament are just phenomenal, they're massive, uh, but they remain true to who they are and, and what that tournament is. And I just love that. That is very hard to do in today's world of business, as you probably well know, John Patrick. Um, but I, I just love the fact that the master stays true to his personality. You know, Mark, it's funny that you say that because here's, and I've, I talked to Billy Payne about this, and he kind of brushed me off a little bit. I've felt that they've they've created it in such a way that if you're a guest before the golf tournament, you drive down Magnolia Lane, you park in that small little parking lot right behind the old range, you hit your balls on the old range, you go in, you have lunch, you come out, you play the golf course, you come back in, you know, you might have something to drink, you drive down Magnolia Lane and make the... Um, make the most sorry right-hand turn in golf. Um, and yet you never see anything that has anything to do with the golf tournament. Everything that has stuff to do with the golf tournament is on the other side of the hedges. The merchandise shop, the vestibule, the media center. You know, they've made it, they've kept it to where the guest experience doesn't really collide with the tournament experience. No, I, I like that a lot, and it's amazing to me. Now, you have to have a fairly healthy budget to be able to do that. But uh, having said that, it, that's not easy. And, yes, they have been able to maintain that, and it's it's just remarkable to me. Um, what was the biggest surprise for you to come out of the tournament? Bill Mickelson? Mm. I mean, nothing even close for me. I, I did not see that one coming. Um, I think it says a lot about Augusta National and, and the spirit of the club and the tournament that that guy, having performed the way that he has the last two years and having gone through everything that he's gone through, that he could actually come out and shoot the kind of score that he shot on Sunday. Uh, I will never, ever know why that happened or actually how that happened. Um, he hit some great shots. He made a lot of putts, but... 
Where did that come from? I was totally shocked. Don't you feel? I mean, he's kind of spoke openly, especially after three victories, about his love for the place, how he gets fired up to play there. And don't you do you give any credence to the fact that, you know, you may just hit the golf ball better if if you're fired up to be at a place? I suppose, I guess that's probably what happened there. But again, I mean, his record on the tour that he's playing now, the live tour has been so bad, uh, you know, hasn't really done anything at all on that tour. And I know that's a completely different environment that he's playing in there. But still, I mean, if you take a look at Augusta National, the shots that he's being required to hit uh, are not getting any easier any year they're they're getting harder as far as i'm concerned and uh and for him to go out and perform like that like that is just remarkable we're talking with uh, mark rolfing here on the augusta golf show fair to say maybe an understatement that john rom has a game built for major championships he's got a game built for any kind of championships any kind of course any kind of conditions if, if you look at it um there is absolutely no weakness in his game. I can say his driving is the best part of his game. His iron game is the best part of his game. He's a he's a tremendous chipper and pitcher around the greens. If there's any kind of a weakness, and maybe with his putting, he's the best left to right putter right now that I've seen on the PGA Tour. Period. Um, he makes everything left to right. I don't know why he can't translate that into right to left putts. He misses way more right-to-left ones, and, and we saw that actually on Saturday with John. Uh, missed a number of fairly fairly makeable right-to-left putts, but uh, other than being a little bit streaky with the putter, he is the whole package, and I really believe uh, that when he is at his best right now, he's the best in the world, and he's got that ranking back. How impressed were you with his course management on the second nine Sunday? I thought it was terrific. You know, it's interesting. People talk so much about John Rahm and about uh, he's a fiery, emotional kind of player. And and sometimes we hear language we shouldn't be hearing or seeing reactions that aren't pleasant to the eye. Uh, but the fact is that is part of his mana, as we call it here in Hawaii, is spirit. Um, and when he tried to suppress that, when he tried to change the way he acted on the course, it did not work at all. It really didn't. That was a few years ago that he tried that experiment. It didn't work. So I don't mind seeing uh, a little bit of emotion out of John where he has really changed, though, in my mind, is he's not letting a bad shot or a bad situation impact the decision-making on his next shot. We've seen him do that over over the uh, time of his career where he would try a shot after hitting a bad one uh, that he should never have tried, and then he just compounded the problem. But I thought he managed his way around really well, and he's just relentless. Uh, once he gets going like that, he is relentless. You know, I don't, I don't think there's a better example to what you just said, Mark, than than how he started the golf tournament: four putting number one, making double bogey, and then going on to play the next 17 holes nine under. I, I don't know that there's a better statement to what you just said. Yeah, that was amazing to me. It almost looked like it didn't really bother him at all. I don't know. Maybe he felt like he had to get it out of his system, so why not do it on the first hole? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I remember a few years ago with the players, you maybe remember this shot, but he had a drive off the 11th tee, the par 5. Yep. 
and got a terrible bounce. He thought it was in the fairway, but it went into the corner of the bunker. And he got up there, and he was ranting and raving and stomping around and all mad about the bad break he got. And the caddy just said, lay it up. You can still hit a wedge close and make a birdie. And he said, no, I'm going to show you what I can do here. And he went and tried to carve a four iron or something out of that line, hit it right in the middle of the lake. Um, and that's the example that I'm giving that he let his emotions dictate a bad decision on the next shot. I'm going to show you so. Uh, he doesn't do that anymore at all. And uh, that was probably the only part of his game that gave any of the other players a chance. Uh, and, and so now they've got a tough haul when they look at John Rahm, as good as he is in managing his way around a course. How did you think the 13th hole played for the tournament? I liked it. Uh, I think it's gotten um, different. I, I don't know that it's really any harder. Uh, the scoring average is probably going to tell you over time that it's going to play fairly similar uh, to the way it did in terms of scoring average. But I'll tell you the interesting thing about that stretch of the course, and that's the most famous stretch of golf in the world, Amen Corner is. Uh, but for years and years, it, it seemed to me like the most vivid thought that I had about Amen Corner was the aesthetics how beautiful the holes were down there and, you know, maybe how diabolical the wind uh, can be down at number 12. But if you look at it now with the changes that have been made, particularly the recent changes, that's the most demanding stretch on the golf course in terms of requiring a player to hit a shot. The second shot at 11 has become much more difficult. Uh, I don't think the tee shot's any harder, even though it's longer, but the second shot's quite a bit harder. Uh, the the tee shot at 12 has always been one of the most demanding shots in the world, and now the second shot at 13 has become a very demanding shot. So not only is Amen Corner aesthetically extremely pleasing, it's now demanding in terms of the shots it requires. Mark, do you think Rory ever wins here? I don't know. Tiger said in his uh, press conference in the press building there that it was inevitable. He said, he said Rory's going to win one. It's just inevitable. It's just a matter of time. I, I'm not sure that's the case. I'm really not. Uh, first of all, I think trying to complete the career grand slam at Augusta is way harder than any other course. It's not at all like what Jordan Spieth is facing. And the main reason is, I believe, is that – we go to Augusta National every year. That's the only one of the majors that you do. And for a guy like Rory, every time he goes there, around every corner is a mirror where he's looking into it and seeing what he's done in the past that have caused him to not have completed the career Grand Slam, and he just can't get away from that. How do you ever stand on the 10th tee and, and look at the magnificent cabins down on the left and not think about what you did? It's almost impossible. So I don't think there's any inevitability to it. I also believe, John Patrick, that winning these majors is going to just get harder and harder because there are more players now uh, that can win uh, than we've seen in a long time. And everybody's talking about how the top players, you know, have sort of separated themselves. The Rom McElroy, Scheffler group, the, the big three of this era, uh, it, it, it looks like it's a big separation in the world golf rankings, but Cameron Young, uh, I think, will win a Masters. There, there are a lot of guys like Cameron Young. I think Max Homan could well win a Masters. 
So it's just going to get harder and harder, and I don't think it's certain at all that Rory will do it. How impressed were you, Mark, with um, Sam Bennett's performance? I, I don't even know what to say about that. Um, these players and, and these college programs are getting so good. Uh, they are so seasoned. Um, I can remember playing some of the bigger tournaments back when I was in college, big amateur tournaments. I never played in a tour event when I was in college, but I was just absolutely scared to death. And I watched Sam Bennett uh, out there, and it's just like he's playing in a college tournament. He really doesn't do anything any different. He doesn't react to the stage that he's on. Uh, Just very, very impressive. And I think a lot of it is because, you know, they get so much exposure now. Shoot, as soon as the Masters went off the air on Sunday, Golf Channel started televising live collegiate golf from the West Coast Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, so they're getting they're getting a dose now of what the big stages are like, and they're way more ready to come out in the big tournaments and play better than they were even five years ago, I would say. Well, you know, to your point, Mark, I, these college kids have just about every advantage that the pros do, whether it's track man, whether it's coaching, whether it's nutrition, whether it's physio or or, or massages or whatever it might be. I mean, the only thing they lack is the experience of playing in a pro event. That's really the only thing they lack. And, and this speed training that they're doing now, John Patrick, is just amazing. You know, people think that the, the fitness trailers and all that kind of stuff for the top players is like they go in there and, and lift barbells and do all sorts of fitness training like that. Really, they, they don't anymore. Uh, and especially at the younger levels, at the college levels, uh, and, and now even at the junior golf level, levels, they're teaching this speed training, uh, and that's why these guys are hitting the ball so far and have the kind of mentality uh, of playing aggressive golf that they do. They, you know, they've watched it on TV, and they know what they have to do to get better, uh, and they're all doing it. You know, I hadn't thought about asking you this question, but what you just said reminds me of this. What, what's your take on, on, on rolling back the golf ball? You know, I, I, I don't think either side of that discussion is wrong at this point. I, I see a lot of benefits. Um, I, I want to hear more about it, but I will, I will say this. I still am not sure what the problem is. Uh, until somebody can really show me and, and, and have me understand and dissect where we have a huge problem with all this, I, I'm not sure that uh, it's something that ought to be that far up our list. It's not nearly as important in my mind as slow play is right now. Why don't we figure out how to take care of that as opposed to rolling back the ball? I haven't had an amateur player in 10 years say to me, well, hey, Mark, I'm, I'm quitting the game. Just <laughs> want you to know I'm quitting because I'm hitting the ball too far and I'm not having any fun anymore. That's just that's not the case. Um, I'm not a bifurcation guy. I, I think if the ball is going to be rolled back, it should be rolled back. It's way too complicated. But I kind of had a sense, you know, as the conditions toughened at Augusta National, uh, like we saw on Saturday, uh, that what I was watching was what it would be like in good conditions if the ball was rolled back. And I'm not sure that's what we want either. So um, I, I'm still not convinced. This is as big a problem as what we're hearing. We're talking with Mark Rolfing here on the Augusta Golf Show. You mentioned slow play. Can you can you see a day when 
somehow that problem is addressed? I can see a shot clock coming, to be honest with you. I was op- I was at uh, opening day in Chicago at Wrigley uh, the week before the Masters and um, got my first dose of a pitch clock. Marcus Stroman was pitching for the Cubs, and I've been a Cubs fan my whole life. And I started out being really nervous. It was going so fast <laughs> that I-, I thought, wow, this is, this is weird. Something is going to implode here either with the pitcher or the umpire or whatever. But within 20 minutes into that game, now they'd been doing it in spring training, so that players were used to it. The fans weren't. I had, that was the first game I had seen with the pitch clock. But by the end of the game, which, by the way, took, I think, two hours and 13 minutes or something, um, by the end of the game, it just felt natural to me. And everybody got in a cadence. And frankly, the pitchers pitched better, I thought. I don't know, Matt what the cause and effect of that was, but I could see, you know, a pitch, uh, pitch count in golf. People will say, well, we have it now. You only get 40 seconds, you know, to hit a shot theoretically if you're the first player in that group. The problem is that is not kind of um, dealt with until a group gets theoretically what they call out of position. So really there is no such thing as a shot clock in golf, but I, I could maybe see that coming. You know, it's funny you mentioned the baseball comparison. I mean, when you and I are about the same age, growing up, that's how quickly baseball games went by. I mean, Bob Gibson, Don Drysdale, those guys played fast. Yeah, they did. And Bob Gibson, didn't he win both ends of a doubleheader one day? I think they might have beat the Cubs, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the games were 2-1 to one and 1-0. One to nothing, And, you know, a- analytics, in my mind, has... It's kind of changed baseball, not for the better. I mean, you know, analytics will show you if a batter goes to the plate five times and he hits one home run and strikes out four times, that's better than hitting four singles. That's not the way I grew up um, watching baseball or even playing baseball. It's a different kind of game now. Um, So maybe it'll start edging its way back more towards the traditional game that I know. Do you, uh, when you're here, do you – Venture into the merchandise shop? Do you get any merchandise? Of course I do. Are you kidding me? What'd you get? What'd you uh, get? I get mostly hats, although I'm a big t-shirt guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you, I put on my master's t-shirt on Tuesday morning when I walked around Waikiki before I went out to the golf course, uh, which is about 15 miles away here on Oahu. And more people stopped me on the street with my Masters shirt and said, you, you weren't at the Masters, were you? You know, or if, if somebody didn't know me. And, and uh, like, there's nothing like having a Masters T-shirt. So I've got six of them this year. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Thank you for your uh, – thank you for providing to our tax base, by the way. What, what, oh, you're welcome. You mentioned Waikiki. You mentioned Hawaii. You live in Hawaii. What's, what's the biggest challenge for you living there? Um, I, you know, kind of staying in touch, um, the, the way I always have, you know, my career was sort of built on having personal relationships with the players and just being around a lot. Uh, now maybe my career was going to have gone the way it has anyway, which is for the end here, I'm in the studio a whole lot more, uh, up in Connecticut than I am with live golf, but I, I kind of miss being around the players and really knowing what's going on. Uh, and especially if I, if I go to the masters, let's say, 
where it's very hard to get access to players, typically I would have maybe two weeks before that when they were at the match play in Austin, I would have talked to every single guy I could. But the difference now is that I'm in Connecticut in the studio, not out there. So I'm kind of like Brandel in that you don't really have access to the players. So you're doing a lot of speculating or trying to figure out information through different sources. So being out here, I'm a little isolated like that. Now, having said that, uh, the best players in the world come every year in January, and I bank a lot of stuff then. Uh, but regardless, I, I would never leave here. Uh, I've become too much of a waterman. He is Mark Rolfing. He's he's living the dream. Uh, covers the game for Golf Channel and NBC. It was great to see you last week, Mark. I always appreciate that. Thank you for doing this, and uh, we will talk again. Yeah, take care and keep up the good work.